Yeah, the reading tonight is from Ephesians 4, starting at verse 25 through to 32. Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. This is God's word. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you most of all that it tells us the truth about you, your son, the Lord Jesus, the salvation he brings and the power it has in our lives. We pray now that you would help us as we study your word together. Help us to understand the truth that we might live by the truth. Amen. Baptism is a picture of what Paul has been teaching us in Ephesians, and in particular what we saw last week, that to become a Christian involves two things. It involves being washed clean of our sin. The water washing kind of helps with that. And it pictures being given a new life. That you come out of the water as a symbol of new life. I have a friend who, uh, who likes to hold people under just long enough that they kind of value the coming back out in new life in, in baptism. But, but that's what baptism pictures. Forgiveness and a new life. So if you look at uh, the verses just before the ones we have tonight, uh, verses 20 to 24. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Baptism pictures that when you turn to Jesus Christ, you are forgiven and you're given a brand new life, a new life. And now in this week's passage, Paul explains, okay, what does it look like to put on that new life, to live it out day by day? What, what sort of attitudes and actions are involved in living this new life that Jesus gives us? Now, this new passage is built on one of the fundamental foundational assumptions of the New Testament. Namely, that Christians who have really been forgiven by God, people who have really turned to trust in Jesus Christ, will live really different lives. If you really experience forgiveness and new life from Jesus, you will really live a new lifestyle. Forgiveness leads to new works, to a new life, to different life. Now, it's very important that you get this right, because it's easy to think, well, okay, so long as both those things are there, it doesn't really matter about the order. Christianity is about kind of being forgiven by God, uh, and it's about living living a good, a virtuous, an upright, uh, a healthy, a wholesome, righteous, however you want to describe it. It's living a good life, and it's getting forgiveness. And it doesn't really matter whether you think uh, the good life earns the forgiveness or the forgiveness leads to the good life. Actually, it makes all the difference in the world. 
it makes all the difference in the world that we understand that the good life God calls us to live, that we're going to learn about tonight, comes in response to forgiveness. It doesn't earn it. Let me show you how different, actually, those, those two ideas are. Uh, if, uh, if I say to my wife, I am just so very grateful for all the kind things that you do for me. And so here is this diamond necklace as a thank you. Things go very well, um, in theory. <laughs> uh, she doesn't get many diamond necklaces from me, I'm afraid. Uh, but if I were to say to my wife, alternative scenario, uh, here is a lovely diamond necklace for you. Now here's a list of things I would like you to do for me in return. It doesn't go quite so well, even if they're large, shiny diamonds. It, that just, that's a very different way of treating somebody. A very different way. And yet I think that instinctively most of us think that the second way is actually how Christianity works. God, you've got, uh, you've got forgiveness and I kind of want heaven and to be right with you. So I've lived this good life. Here's my good life. Now can I have in return your forgiveness? Christianity is the opposite of that. In Christianity, God gives us forgiveness a new life as a free gift. And then in response to that, we want to live for him. True Christianity is, God, you, when I didn't deserve it, when I was an object of wrath, as your word says, you freely forgave me. You freely gave me this new life. Now, because of that, I want to turn away from the old ways and I want to live for you. Uh, earlier on in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, if you turn back to chapter 2 and verses 8 to 9, Paul makes this explicit. For it is by grace, that is undeserved favor, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Christianity is about how God saves us in spite of what we've done. And that salvation changes us to live new lives. And we'll completely misunderstand tonight's passage unless we're clear about that. This passage is not how to behave if you would like to be accepted by God. This is how do you live if you have been accepted and forgiven by God? Real forgiveness leads to real change. That's the big idea. And Paul begins as he explains what this real change looks like. Real forgiveness leads to real change. Okay, well, what does that look like in the nitty-gritty of daily life? He begins, firstly, you've, you've got the points on your sheet, uh, by telling us to put off falsehood and anger and to put on truth and self-control. Uh, let's dive in at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Don't lie. We lie when the truth costs us or when a lie will benefit us. We lie to protect ourselves or we lie to promote ourselves. But if you follow Jesus, you're to serve others and not yourself. And, the, and therefore, if you call yourself a Christian, you are to walk away from lies. You are to walk in truth. Now the church as we've learned throughout Ephesians, is one body. It's united by Jesus Christ. You cannot be united if you lie to one another. Lies drive a wedge between you and the person you lie to because you begin to inhabit different realities. 
you live in the reality where I haven't done something that I'm pretending hasn't happened. I live in the reality where I know I've done it, but I'm denying it to you. As soon as you tell a lie, you put a a massive chasm between you and the person you lie. Jesus' great work is to unite us, to reconcile us to God and to one another. And so when we, when we lie, we divide. And God says, no, 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 don't, don't live in lies. As God's people, be united. Tell the truth. Put off falsehood. Secondly, don't be controlled by anger. Verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, no, anger is not inherently wrong here. We should be angry when we're confronted by genuine wrongdoing. It ought to anger us when we see real evil. If you can watch the evening news and not get angry, there's something, there's something emotionally deficient about us. God gets angry, we're told again and again in the Bible, with human wickedness. In fact, in Ephesians 2, we're told that we are objects of God's anger, his wrath. But what comes next helps us to understand what he means when he says, uh, be angry, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. In other words, don't allow anger to simmer overnight. It's a very good principle for ensuring a healthy relationship. If you have a blowout with a friend or a family member or a spouse, sort it out before you go to bed. Somehow when you let the cement set overnight, it's that much harder to sort it out the next day. It's true. But actually, I think the main point that he's making here is not about relational advice. It's about, look, don't let anger rule you. Don't let anger rule you. When you put anger away before you go to bed, you say, okay, the time for being angry is over. I'm in control of this anger. It's not in control of me. I've decided that it's time to move on. If you fail to do that, verse 27, you open a door for the devil's influence. Don't let anger control you, dominate you, consume you, he says. Because if you do, you just end up serving the devil. So a friend betrays a secret. uh, You know, the sort of secret that really hurts. That really is pretty shaming. And you're angry, rightly. But what do you do? It's right to be angry. It's right to talk to the friend about it. But if you nurture that anger, if you go to bed seething, simmering, allow it to to stew overnight, the anger grows into resentment and the anger swells and it corrupts and it rots. And eventually, you don't want to talk to them because, well, look, I love them. They're my friend and what they've done is wrong and it's not a good thing that they're doing this. And so I do need to confront it. No, no, no. Now, when I talk to them, I want to hurt them. Because I'm angry and I want to strike back. It's very, very different. You end up actually, if you allow anger to rule you, you end up just as much a sinner as the person who you're angry with in the first place. Most anger, if you like, is it's like milk that's been left out of the fridge, most anger. It's fine for a day, but leave it much longer than that and it's rotten and it will do you no good at all. Put off falsehood and anger. It's the first thing he says. And instead, put on truth and self-control. 
put off anger and falsehood, put on truth and self-control. Uh, secondly, put off selfishness and put on service. Now, the next two things, uh, stealing and unwholesome talk, they might seem rather unrelated when we look at them. But in fact, the same point is going to be made, namely that we're to turn away from selfishness and we're to, and we're to, to start serving others. So we're no longer to think about uh, what do I get out of this? We're to think about how do we serve others and meet their needs. You'll see, um, actually, at the end of both verses, there are, there are comments about needs that shows that it's the same issue. So verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So use what you have to serve the needs of others, not yourself. That's the big point that he, that's going on here. And firstly, he tells us to, to do it with finance. Verse 28, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those who are in need. Now, I'm not sure whether he's talking about pickpockets or burglars or email scammers or dodgy financiers, but clearly a whole heap of people who earned their money in nefarious ways uh, through deceit have become Christians in Ephesus and have joined the church. And so Paul applies what it means to, to, to put off the old life and to put on the new life in Christ to a very practical area, how they make their money. He says, put off theft, put on generosity. Stop stealing, start getting an honest job, and start giving money to those who are in need. It's a pretty extreme example. But if you are involved in theft tonight, you can't call yourself a Christian and carry on. So put it off. But actually, all of us need to go through the same heart change that's, that's beneath this. You see, theft is a willingness to let other people bear the cost for me to get what I want. That's what theft is. It's the heart attitude that says, I am willing to allow other people to bear the cost for me to get what I want. Whereas hardworking generosity is the opposite. It's a willingness for me to bear the cost for other people to get what they need. And his point is very simple. Look, if your wallet hasn't been converted, if following Jesus Christ makes no difference to your wallet, well then Paul would ask, have you really really found new life in Christ at all. Put off selfishness, put on service when it comes to money. Secondly, uh, speak in a way that serves others by building them up. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do you know how many emails are sent every day? Would you like to know? I'm going to tell you anyway. It's uh, 281 billion. Yeah, it's quite, yeah, most of them are about Black Friday and arrived in your inbox last week. 281 billion emails are sent every day. 1.4 billion posts or comments are made every day on Insta Twitface across the sort of the major social media fora. What do you think those numbers would be if people only hit send or clicked, you know, go on their comments? How many do you think would actually be sent if people only did that, if they were convinced what I'm writing is wholesome and will be of real benefit to other people rather than me? Whew. 
the issue here is, what comes out of your lips when you speak, what comes out of your fingertips when you type, it matters because it's a heart issue. Uh, biologically, when, uh, when you open your mouth, uh, you empty the contents of your lungs. But Jesus says in Luke 6.45 that spiritually, when you open your mouth, you empty the content of your heart. You reveal what's inside your heart. So I speak all the time rather than listen to other people because, frankly, I'm convinced that what I have to say is more important because I think I'm more important. I'm wittier. I'm cleverer. I share gossip because I love to be, well, the one who's in the know. Or I really enjoy just seeing them taken down a peg or two because I envy them. We tell smutty jokes because, well, my heart's just quite filthy, to be honest. I shout abuse because, look, the world ought to revolve around me, frankly. And it just, I get angry when, when people get in the way and they won't meet my agenda. So I shout abuse. I show off. And I exaggerate because deep down I just crave other people to think I'm more than I actually am. Too often we're careless and thoughtless about our words. And what they reveal about our hearts is pretty ugly. But actually our words can be so much better than that. Our words can heal rather than wound. They can build people up rather than crush them down. They can encourage rather than gossip. They can edify rather than share filth. Uh, Paul tells us, just uh, back a page in Ephesians 4.15, that as we speak the truth in love to one another, we, the church, will grow up in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Our words to one another are how God brings us to maturity spiritually. Our words are very, very powerful. The church grows as each of us, motivated by love, speaks God's truth. Words are like bricks. We can use them to build other up, others up, or we can use them to damage others as we throw them. And so Paul says our spending and our speaking, if we've really met Christ, if we've been forgiven and have new life, our spending and our speaking ought to be motivated by a desire to serve others rather than myself. And then finally, uh, put off bitterness, put on forgiveness. The final section uh, begins with a reminder of what is at stake. Our behavior can delight or can grieve the Spirit of God. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Our behavior can delight or grieve the Holy Spirit. And note in passing, the Holy Spirit's not some Star Wars-esque force. He's personal. He can be grieved. Now, God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So why is it that he stresses the Holy Spirit here? I think it's because the, the stress here is on, um, on behavior that destroys or promotes unity. And as we learned in 4.3, with the talk of the unity of the Spirit, it is the Spirit whose particular role is to bring that unity that Christ has won for the church. He dwells, 2.22 tells us, in the church as we gather. He is the Spirit of unity. And so it is particularly the Holy Spirit who is grieved, hurt, angered, disappointed when you and I do things which damage the unity of God's family, the church. Things like bitterness, 
rage, anger, brawling, slander and malice. Instead, we should be kind, compassionate and forgiving. It's quite a picture of the church when you think about it. Paul's picture of church, he says, basically, church is a a group of people who have to work very hard to be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. Because if they didn't, by their natural disposition, church would look like a Black Friday TV sale in Asda. That's what he's basically saying. Saying, look, you lot, that's what church is like. Don't think you're any better than that. If if I don't tell you you're going to have to fight hard against these things, you would be marked by bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. Church is not a gathering of the most moral people you can find in a culture. It's a gathering of people of all sorts of backgrounds who found forgiveness in Jesus Christ and are learning to live a new way. Not perfect, but changing. And there will be times when all of us here are tempted to treat other people here the way they deserve. And God says that's not good enough. Instead, we are to treat one another with kindness, with compassion, and with forgiveness. Daily, we're called to to put off the old self and to put on the new self by turning away from one set of behaviors and instead striving, willing, determining to live out another set of behaviors. Uh, You wouldn't go out, I hope, to uni or to, to work or wherever having forgotten to get dressed in the morning. You just wouldn't go out starkers into the day. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get very far. Uh, but you wouldn't do that. And as Christians, we're told to put on the new self. It is just as weird, odd, unthinkable if you're a Christian for us to go into the new day without putting on the new self, the new behaviors, as to go into a new day without putting on new clothes. Okay, so if Christians are a pretty average bunch of people, how on earth can a group like this learn to live lives of kindness, compassion, and forgiveness? Where do we find the strength, uh, the, not just the inspiration, but the, the, the courage and the, the determination to live this way? And the answer comes in verse 32 in the second half. Forgive as in Christ God forgave you. This is the key. Because it's all very well telling us how to live. For most of us, the great problem in life is not that I don't know enough stuff. It's not that I don't know how to treat people. It's just that I find people quite difficult. And so even though I know how I should treat them, I find it very hard to actually do it. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of power. But what we lack by nature in ourselves we find in God. Forgive just as in Christ, God forgave you. He says you're to learn to forgive, and two things, that that, that forgiveness is to be modeled on the forgiveness God has given you in Christ. And it is as you receive that forgiveness that you're enabled to forgive others. You plug into the power of God, the forgiveness of God, and the electricity flows into you and out through you. You don't generate it yourself. You're not a dynamo if you want to get electrical. You, are, you, you just plug into God's mains. You receive his forgiveness so that you have forgiveness to share with other people. And what an extraordinary forgiveness it is. I was uh, talking to somebody who was uh, struggling with forgiveness recently. And uh, they've been 
well, to be honest, I think they'd been looking on the internet to find articles that would tell them what they wanted to hear. And, and they'd looked at one that said, actually, a healthy forgiveness should not be offered to somebody unless they have taken genuine steps to rectify the relationship and that they have humiliated themselves enough that you know it's genuine. And I really liked this because it you know, basically said forgiveness is, it's all down to the other person doing enough that you then find it easy to forgive them. But that's not what you learn if you're a Christian. We are to forgive as in Christ God forgave us. And the way that God has forgiven you the way that God offers to forgive anybody is fully and freely. Fully and freely. In Christ, God took upon himself every single sin any of us have committed if we trust in him. Every single one. It's not that God said, look, you know, I'll deal with most of them and then you can pay for the rest just to show that you're serious. No, no, no. He paid for every single sin on the cross. Every single one. And it was also done freely. God didn't sit there and say, I'll tell you what. If you show me you're worth it, then I will, I'll, do this, I'll do what you can't do. I'll give you forgiveness and a new life. But you, you've got to show you, you're worth it and you've got to show you want it. It wasn't like that. We're told in, in chapter 2 that... We were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us. God loved us not when we were making steps to rectify the relationship, but when we deserved hell. God has forgiven us fully in Christ. On the cross, he suffered everything for all our sins for all time. And God has forgiven us freely in Christ. It was his initiative. He has done everything and he requires nothing from us. It's a total free gift. It's Christmas, not a salary. It is not earned, not deserved. It is simply lavished upon us. It is by grace we've been saved. And God says, look, when you've received a love like that, a forgiveness like that, share it with other people. You'll never just be able to do it yourself. You need to receive it from Christ first. But when you've received it from Christ, share it with others. And so he encourages really to, what should you do if people hurt you? Well, be cross-eyed. Look at them, be cross-eyed. Look at them through the lens of what God has done for you through Jesus on the cross. When people really hurt you and you want to strike back, look at them through what God has done for you on the cross. I've been forgiven this much. Now, how will I treat these people? The wonderful thing, though, of course, about this verse is it's not just a model for us for how to behave. It's also a reminder to us of what's on offer. That any and every one of us, if we will come to God, if we will trust in Jesus as we are, warts and all, he offers us full free forgiveness. It's a wonderful offer. Take it up tonight. So that's how Paul tells us we are to to live, to put on the new. Put off falsehood and anger, put on truth and self-control. Put off selfishness, put on serviceness. Put off bitterness and put on forgiveness. Now I wonder, does it strike you quite how mundane all of that is? If that doesn't sound a bit blasphemous here. I mean, it's just very mundane. 
The letter of Ephesians is about the great cosmic work of God in Christ. Uh, we learned in, in, in 110 about God's great purposes in history. Um, his great purpose in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God has got these great, enormous cosmic purposes involving every human being in history. Every atom in reality. Uh, And as individuals turn to Christ in the living uh, church, we are the visible proof of the power of God at work. So chapter 3, verse 10, his intent, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. How does Paul then ground this great epic work of God, which is the central act of all history and all the universe? So... To, to put off the old self, put on the new self, this be part of God's enormous reconciling work in Christ and show it by, uh, by standing up to the Roman Empire and the wicked tyranny of the institution of slavery and start a global movement which will transform the world. Or free the peoples of the world from the subjugation of the empire and bring democracy to all the peoples that there might be freedom on this planet. No, Paul says, put off the old, put on the new. By stop telling porky pies, try not to get quite so angry as often as you do. Be generous, be kind to people who are annoying and forgive people who hurt you. It just, it just seems so banal in one sense, doesn't it? But actually, it is far, far easier to be zealous for a distant cause than to change the way we treat our friends, our family, our work colleagues. You can serve all sorts of great, noble international causes, the uh, human rights violations in Burma and advocate for education of children in sub-Saharan Africa. You can, you can be involved in all sorts of great things around the globe while being selfish, mean-spirited and abusive in your own relationships. And so chapters 3 to 6 of Ephesians, is, as Paul starts at 4 to 6, as Paul starts to work out the, the implications of what does it mean to have this new life in Christ. Well, they start in the nitty gritty, where we spend most of our time, and where Satan therefore most often attacks us and pulls us down. Now, down the centuries, uh, finding new life in Christ has inspired Christians to start so many of the great national and international movements that have transformed society. And that's absolutely right. But it doesn't start there. First of all, the New Testament calls all who trust in Christ to work out the reality of that trust, the reality of that new life, by being honest, financially generous. And personally kind. To behave at university and at home and with our families in a way which is gracious and gentle. And and is about serving others, not about myself. And that is a whole lot harder to fake. And those of us who, who would call ourselves Christians tonight, we know, I guess, as we hear these words, we need to look honestly into our hearts and see where we're cherishing sins, clinging to the old clothes that we should have discarded a long time ago. And refusing to put on the new clean clothes. Because, well, when it comes to it, it's just quite hard work being kind to people who are annoying. Forgiving people who hurt us. Loving our families. And we need to acknowledge and expose our deep-set sins to the light. We need to hold one another accountable. And help one another. And pray for one another. 
so that we as a church and each of us as individuals put off the old and put on the new. There are two strands of teaching in the New Testament that you and I need to hold on to if we're going to to follow Christ and if we're going to actually be truthful, real Christians. On the one hand, we need to hold on to the fact that we are saved by grace. It is not the stuff I do that saves me, but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That saves us completely, does everything for us. Salvation, forgiveness, a right standing with God, all of that is a free gift given to us by Jesus Christ. We come to Jesus, and the only thing we contribute is the sin that needs forgiving, the shame that needs washing. That's all we contribute. On the other hand, the New Testament also teaches, secondly, that the forgiveness, the salvation, the washing that God performs is so real and so powerful that it changes us. And it changes us right in the basic fundamental relationships we have and the fundamental attitudes with which we treat other people. We don't become perfect, not till heaven, but we do start to change. The new life that Jesus Christ gives you is real. And so it needs to make a real difference in how we live. Like Christianity is like a tree. The roots are what give a tree life. And the roots of Christianity are what God has done in Jesus Christ. But the fruit that comes off a tree, well, that demonstrates that a tree is really alive. The fruit of the good works we do. The fruit doesn't cause the tree to be alive. It results from the roots. It's the roots that cause the fruit. Our good works don't cause us to be Christians. They flow out from the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has given us on the cross. And if we really are his people, then we really will live his life and we really will produce good fruit. And so Paul calls Elliot and Angus and all of us who follow Jesus, live out the life that he has given. Baptism is a picture of what God offers every single individual in this building tonight. God says, I will wash you clean of your sin if you come to me. I will bring you up into a new life, free of guilt and shame and fear. A rich, purposeful life that that pleases God and is a blessing to others. And God calls every one of us tonight, receive that forgiveness and that life. And then live out that lifestyle to the glory of God and the blessing of others. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that you would help us to turn to Christ and receive forgiveness. And having received forgiveness, help us to turn away from the old life and to live a new life. A life which pleases you and a life which blesses other people. And we ask this for your glory amongst us in the nitty-gritty of daily life. Amen.